Welcome to Running Off the Rails. My name is Raymond O'Connor. And I'm Ariel Rasco. And today we're talking about Arcadia 3, MCDM's Dungeons & Dragons 5th edition supplement. They came out with the third issue yesterday, as of the day of recording, and we're really excited to talk about it. I think maybe this is my favorite issue. Ariel, how do you feel about this one? Oh, interesting. I loved the first one a lot, mostly for those really like game-ending villains. I thought that was kind of my favorite part of Arcadia altogether so far. Part 3 is definitely up there. It's got a lot of things in it that are just immediately available to any game you're running with any group of people. I think maybe what surprised me or made me so happy with issue 3 is that all of these issues kind of take Dungeons and Dragons and ask kind of like, what if? It really pushes the boundaries, not just of the mechanics that we enjoy typically, but a, a lot of these things are are weird and funky. Like not just not just like broken or like really good or like new takes on something we've seen before. I think I think the the best uh, comparison you can draw is I think in issue one we got mounted combat rules, which was which was really exciting. It really added um, some depth to mounted combat, which is a thing that exists in Dungeons and Dragons already. In issue three, we get aerial combat rules and this system that they've introduced for aerial combat is completely different from anything that exists previously in the existing rule set. Yeah, I think my perspective on how they're releasing Arcadia is similar to yours, but I think they're also asking what's missing from Dungeons and Dragons and not just like how can we take these existing things and make them weirder, which they definitely do with the ancestries they provide here. I love how weird they are. But I think they're also asking like what's missing. And so if you look at this issue as a whole, you have some like very weird ancestries that are more otherworldly, which I think is something that doesn't exist currently. You have aerial combat, you have an adventure that doesn't have combat, and you have spells. And this is the one that made me think of it. You actually have a list of spells that are missing from Dungeons and Dragons. Like that's the pitch for that one. And I think I'm now like reading this whole thing in that lens a little bit. What are some things that we could add that we felt like were missing from our games, but maybe weren't missing from all of D&D, just not in fifth edition? Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Well, you, you brought them up, so let's just dive right in. The first article is called The Dreamkin. It's three dream-themed ancestries by justice armin these are are kind of just what you said these are these are basically they're dream themed playable character races or player races but they are what they really are is they're they're alien races like you can play as an alien if you choose one of these these three ancestries yeah like the descriptions of them are very non-human like they try to be you know they have these different forms that have lots of different almost monstrous shapes you know the first one is the lucidling the lucidling is a dream made real but this dream made real is specifically a dream of an aberration so it is like very monstrous in its origin so it's really this like non-human alien type of thing except the alien is not from outer space it's from depths of hell maybe or or just like the weird places in D&D where if your character ventures into they'll find something that is an aberration of nature that is the aliens on earth kind of is how i picture them so uh, these are definitely alien like races and the if the descriptions uh, don't show you that the pictures will Definitely. Just like all the other, the previous issues, this issue is arted up like really well. Right as soon as you open up the first page, you can see this like weird squire looking, almost like mind flare-esque, like goofy looking like Jar Jar Binks, (laughs) like alien. And it, it evokes like such a, such a weird, uh, 
it, it's definitely inspiring. Like I could see myself including this already as like an NPC. Um, for folks who aren't aware, dreams are like a, a core part of the lore of aberrations. So the way that new beholders are born is another beholder dreams them into existence. And then typically what the two beholders will do is they'll fight to the death. But every once in a while, a, a beholder escapes from that battle. And that's how you that's how you beholders actually like multiply. Oh, I didn't know that part about them fighting. So it's like, that's why you don't have that many beholders, because for them to actually grow in number, they have to be an edge case. They have to be a, a weird case where somebody got away. Yeah, because every beholder believes themselves to be the ultimate life form. They believe themselves to be like the ultimate beholder basically like god one of a kind so they they believe that as a part of just their like being a beholder it's 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 innate so if they try to uh they try to like kill any would-be threat to their dominance yeah so maybe let's talk a little bit for each of these three different ancestries about kind of the flavor and then the mechanical things that you get from choosing this ancestry. So for a lucidling, the flavor that we've kind of talked about is this idea that you are born from a dream. A very cool concept, but I, I feel like it's not quite as telling of like, oh, what should my character be like? Not that ancestry has to be that, but sometimes it certainly, sometimes it can be more evocative or less evocative of like what character you might want to play. But mechanically, lucidlings uh, do some pretty cool things. So you have this like basically alien form that you can use in you know combat probably uh, where for 10 minutes you get to just turn into this like crazy creature with very strong appendages that you can you know deal different kinds of damage to and also you get like a flying speed and a swimming speed yeah you, you when you take on this like this form change you can choose one that is like suitable for the the thing that you're trying to like deal with at that time so it's very very useful very powerful uh, ability we have we've seen races that have swimming speeds and we've seen races that have flying speeds and and we've seen races who have like a bonus action attack or like a bite attack it's interesting that they kind of decided to like jam all of those elements into one race but like you can only do it once per long rest which is, which is interesting you won't be able to like survive underwater for longer than 10 minutes one of the things i think is interesting about these specific ancestries is as a dm i think i would create a world where these ancestries are uncommon and maybe there's some place you could go where you would find more of these like more than one of you know these types of creatures but I think if a player is choosing one of these types of creatures, they want to be weird and different. So how would I, as a DM, have like a townsfolk uh, react to this kind of creature coming in to, you know, be the hero for their adventure? What does it look like when the hero is specifically something that somebody has never seen before? Because I think I'd, a player would want to have that experience. They would want to feel like uh, they're something that is special and has never been seen before. So, like, how would you react to a uh, lucidling coming into, you know, a bar or a tavern? Yeah, I think I think that's a great point. In in a world where fantastical races like Aarakocra and Dragonborn are commonplace, this is them raising the bar once again. It's like, okay, fine. If all of these fantastical races are going to be expected that you might come across them or people have heard of them and they're not there's no shock value because because, yeah, I've heard of Dragonborns before. I'm not surprised that there's a Dragonborn adventurer here now. Yeah, I haven't seen too many of them, but, like, I know you exist. These are these playable races that, like, no one has seen or heard of what this thing is. This thing is one of a kind. Yeah, and I think that, that you should lean into that. Like, I think that's an experience that your players will want to have. So uh, I don't think you have to be afraid of that. And I would definitely introduce these races as NPC characters. They're very interesting. So if we if we take a look at the next one, the sand speaker, the art for this race is it almost looks like sand that's been like struck by lightning and has turned into like glass. Yeah, I was gonna say it's like a glass blown creature. Like it's a glass blown skeleton. 
yeah the art is super evocative and it like floats around it's almost it's almost an earth elemental uh it has it has a like a sandy form to it which is something that we see with things like the fire elemental and the water elemental that they can like pass through places that are like hard to squeeze through and it's it's thing that it does that's like very evocative and very weird is that it can enter the dreams of a sleeping creature this isn't like a mechanical thing this is purely flavor but it is definitely a great place to have some like really interesting role play moments yeah this is a little bit what i was talking about with having these ancestries that are actually inspirational i i didn't mean that you you know have prejudices or stereotypes for certain races like um you know oh if i have an elf i should be like highborn and look down on other people like that that's certainly true and something that people use as inspiration but you could obviously play an elf with any personality but i think the inspiration for these ancestries is like what would your life be like if you were sent to invade the dreams of others and if you were giving omens you know like one of the you know parts of the backstory of these uh of sand speakers is that they might be um entering someone's dream to relay an omen to them for weeks or months on end and i think that being your role in the you know multiverse is very inspirational for what that might be like as a player character yeah definitely and i think it's very interesting that like you might enter someone's dreams and your dm then or the player like what you you get to ask the player sitting next to you and be like i'm in your dreams like what are you dreaming about we talked about this last week uh, or two weeks ago, rather, with like having your players have DM moments. The player of the the dream that you've entered now gets to be a DM. If they wanted to, they could they could like attack you in their dream with uh, almost like an Inception style. Oh, the, I'm having this dream about my childhood, but all of a sudden you see all of the like actors of this dream turn around and stare at you, and they like galvanize against you and now you're in now you're rolling initiative inside your like party member's dream this is something stuff could happen yeah this is something that i think is the best part of this ancestry but also the most difficult so if you are a dm and you have a character that's going around through dreams uh what do you do And so they give some advice for this. There's a little section called Entering Dreams. And there's like one part of it that I'll, you know, bring up. But the idea that if you enter a dream, the writing and the words in it might just be like gibberish. And I think that's like painting this idea that the dream landscape can be this really fun, weird place to play D&D. Especially, you know, maybe for some like one-on-one, you know, over text message before the session or... Um, maybe the other players are sitting at the table listening, but, you know, one player is active and you, you create this like short vignette that is just like strange and weird. I think that's really cool. I think it's also like a very difficult thing to base a character on. If you're the player, you, you might want to go to your DM and say like, hey, this is something I read this section and it sounded so cool. Can we do this? And if your DM is like, uh, yeah, I can give it a try and it works out well, I think it can be super fun. But it's also a little bit more work and maybe a style that your DM is not super used to. So I don't know. I I feel like it could work really well, but it also might be difficult to work at every table. I think that this is not an advanced concept, but the rules of traditional Dungeons & Dragons do not prepare you for running these mechanics. Yeah, I agree with that. And then the the last playable race here is the Somnian. And this one is my favorite purely because of their like capstone racial ability. Oh, this is funny because this was my favorite, but I thought that their abilities didn't do enough. So I'm curious. I love this because uh, they said that these Somnians act like philosophers. So I'll say what they are first, right? These are creatures that are put in the multiverse to create the dreamscape. The world of dreams and dreaming is created by your ancestry, by Somnians, by things that are like you. And they have some really, really crazy abilities. One of them uh, Ray will get into, I'm sure. But they also, like, 
I thought fell short for me a little bit. So what was your impression of this ancestry like existing in the first place, like introducing something so kind of like wonky and powerful? Yeah, it's definitely strange. They're called like cosmic shepherds. Like the idea that these beings kind of like guide the universe is is cool. That's a cool thing that that exists. It's interesting that like a player would be that it's like a playable class. I would expect these to be kind of like angels or devils. That you would um, like meet in a campaign, not that you would play as. Yeah, like a CR like 10 monster or something like that, or even higher. So it's interesting that you could be like a level one Somnian. But the way that I would make that make sense is is that like, oh yeah, Somnians are really powerful, but they are only powerful in like large groups. So like if you wanted to control the course of a a destiny or a destiny of an entire region, you would need an entire like village or settlement of these things all working in harmony to like affect that level of change and then if you're if you're a lone somnian you can do the things that are listed on your racial traits that's a that's a genius idea i was i was definitely going to take it the other direction where uh this ancestry has a progression it has like third level fifth level and so on uh not like and not a lot but a little bit so I was just going to say like, oh, young Somnians, you know, whatever that means, like you might look old or young or whatever, but like new Somnians level one, they just like haven't had their full powers manifest yet. So they're not very powerful. So you're just like a baby Somnian. And that's why you're like going out and exploring the world. That makes sense too. I mean, they can live up to be 500 years old, which actually isn't that long. Maybe I would kick that up to like 5,000 <laughs> And a 5,000-year-old Somnian is that, like, CR 20 dream creator where, like, it's powerful enough to supply the dreams for an entire planet um, if you're, like, thinking on that scale. Whereas, like, if you're a little baby Somnian, you get to level 5, and I think your 5th level ability as this, as this race is that you get to cast the Major Image spell, which is, like, a very powerful spell, but it's very thematic that something that is able to create the dreams of folks inside their like sleeping consciousnesses would be able to create a like major image almost like a dream brought into reality so for me the big inspiration from this one is uh the idea that what you are thinking about it's like what you're talking about with this idea of a really old somnian that can control the thoughts and dreams and motivations of a whole planet like, like, what would that make you like to talk to? What would, what would it be like to talk to somebody like this? And so that is really inspirational for me. I'm kind of known in like one of my groups of friends for coming up with player characters that like talk about things that aren't in the campaign. Like I'll try to come up with a player character that talks about like, you know, something that's we're not doing, you know, whether that be talking about a deity all the time or talking about the seeds of fate or talking about just like plot that I'm setting up with the GM for much later where I'm like predicting the future almost. I like tried to play a character. I played a divination wizard where I was coming up with plots for like the future where I wasn't really talking about what was going on in the moment, but I was talking about what our enemies could be in the future. The Somnian, I think, is a perfect way to play a character like that. And I'm really excited for it. And I like the idea that they're natural philosophers. Like, if you were going to play a character that was a philosopher thinking about the tides of, like, time in a really big emotional way, like, what would that be like? And so I think that's incredibly inspirational. And I think playing a Somnian would be just, like, a really weird character to play for a bit and extremely fun for everyone at the table. That definitely resonates with me as well. And their final ability is so good. <laughs> it's perfect. I think it's so perfect, perfect for uh, having a character arc. You know, you get you get to have like an arc that you decide. You get so much control over the arc of your character. So, so what is this last ability? It's called Remembrance. And I'm just going to read it verbatim. So you can cast the Resurrection spell once with this trait. You basically get to bring someone back to life with no constraints. Uh, when you do so, you immediately die, and your body withers away in a cloud of starry dust. The resurrected creature awakes with a memory of yours, chosen by you. A Somnian who sacrifices themselves in this way can only be brought back to life with a wish spell. That's 
awesome. So you have this one, so you have this character, you were talking about like character arc, right? You have this Somnian character who thinks that they know best because they are the shepherds of the universe and the shepherds of philosophy. And then through having spent time with these mortal and human player characters, they learn that like life is, is not to be taken in abstract. It's to be lived moment to moment in the moment. Then that person that taught them that thing dies. And then like this Somnian, it's not human. It's not capable of living in the moment. It knows that like it could increase the net happiness of the world by giving its life for another. And then it, it vanishes. And, and then this player character is left with this like, not guilt, but this legacy that they need to fulfill of kind of like beating the bad guy or whatever ended up killing them. And then the Somnian gave their life for them. It's perfect for the player who doesn't want to play the same character for an entire campaign. And some DMs just don't kill their players. So this is a way for you to like kind of take it into your own hands, I think. Yeah, I mean, I think there are so many different ways you could uh, want to have this play out as a really fun short character arc as part of a campaign where, you know, you're just like a Somnian that learns to love and the thing that you love or the character that you love dies and you bring it back to life or you are doing something for the greater good like you were talking about like oh my god I'm just this poor creature but this other player character is like destined to save the world so I'm going to sacrifice my life for them. I think those are very storybook endings and often in D&D there's this advice that's like if you have a really great idea that is like for a beginning, middle, and end, just like go write a book. You know, D&D is, is more open-ended and uh, it's shared. And if you want to create a very specific story, like make that story for yourself. But at the table, there's five different stories. So, you know, don't be too prescriptive about your story. I think this is a way of kind of meeting in the middle. You get to have your storybook ending and have control over your own narrative, which I think sometimes you don't have that much control at the table, uh, you know, depending on the character. You know, sometimes you have a little bit more, sometimes you have a little bit less, but this really gives you control over your storybook ending. So I think a lot of players who naturally want to do something more, you know, fully fleshed out in their head and they want to realize it at the table, like you could use a Somnian for that. And I think that would be really special. Yeah, I think, I think you summed it up perfectly. Oh yeah. My one criticism of this is, like, where in this ancestry, in this, you know, like, two pages, do you actually get to create a dream? Like, isn't that the whole character concept, that Somnians create dreams? Uh, I mean, you're, you're creating dreams in reality. You're, you're making, like, dreams made real. I, I don't think it needs to be written on paper that you give other people dreams. I think the problem with writing down that you're giving other people dreams is that you are giving one player too much power over another player potentially right well the sand speaker has a similar power i almost thought they didn't want to do it because it's too similar to the sand speaker like the sand speaker gets to go into your dream it's possible but the sand speaker the power dynamic is flipped so the player who has chosen to fuss around with dreams is in the passenger seat whereas with the somnian you would be imposing dreams on other people which i don't know that might be that yeah depending on like what that player what's important to that player that might be troublesome it's true i kind of wonder if they tried it out and uh couldn't find something they liked because it is it is tricky to have that power dynamic you know i'm imagining like maybe uh there is a good way to do it. And I, I would have liked to be, you know, a fly on the wall in the conversations where they were talking about the Somnian because I definitely think it's a little bit of a missed opportunity. The, the first sentence in the description of the Somnian is Somnians are the creators of dreams. So I was like, oh, wow, like, how are they going to do that? I'm really excited. And then I felt like it didn't deliver in some sense. So I, I feel like I, if it were me, I might try to like homebrew something where I would mm. maybe create a um, a mechanism where uh, a Somnian could like spend a lot of work and it could be a whole, you know, short adventure. In order to plant a dream in somebody, you have to get to know them and you have to understand their mind and you have to know what ails them. And, and once you've like truly learned a person, you can give them a dream. And that could be like a little arc or something that I create 
for my own campaign. I don't know. I I was I felt a little let down because of it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's fair. <laughs> that's fair. I, I like the hot takes. I like the hot takes. <laughs> yeah. Um. Cool. Okay. So up next, we have ten spells you need in fifth edition. Ten classic spells updated for the latest edition by Celeste Conowith. So these are spells that existed previously in Dungeons and Dragons and have been rebuilt from the ground up to bring back into fifth edition. I'm just going to run through the names real quick, and then Ariel and I are going to choose two each to talk about. Attract Metal, Erase, Glitter Dust, Nature's Ladder, Permanency, Rainbow Recurve, Shrink, Silver Wings, Stoneheart, and Walking Dead. So, Ariel, which one of these spells do you want to talk about first? So, I, w- I was tempted to want to talk about Rainbow Recurve and Walking Dead just because of the art for those is really stunning, and uh, I just loved the pieces they chose. But I'm actually going to go with the two, I think, least exciting spells, uh, Erase and Glitter Dust. Uh, I don't know if those were appealing to you, but... Uh, from my perspective, they're just really nice utility spells that I I personally like when there are more utility spells in the game. When I kind of encourage my players to choose spells like Mending, or it's a cantrip, where they get to have something in their toolbox that isn't dealing damage. Erase just allows you to erase writing from a scroll or a piece of paper. And I think you could be extremely creative. Like me as a DM, I would give my players more papers such that they could look and see if they can remove one keyword or like one sentence. Can they change the meaning of that letter? Wouldn't that be a really cool project, I think, for people to do uh, in between sessions maybe? Uh, And then Glitter Dust is like this utility where it kind of specifically gives you this tool for fighting invisible creatures. And so you get to spray them with glitter and now they're no longer invisible. You can see them. And and I just thought that's be a fun way where I could put a lot of invisible creatures into the combats that I have. And then players could blast them with glitter and use their spells to be effective. And I think that would be a lot of fun at the table. I think it's really interesting that in true form, when you read a race, you you have like this huge narrative take on it. Whereas when I read it, I was like, wow, from like a mechanics perspective, I also love the erase spell, but I love it because dispel magic is so expensive and dispel magic you often bring such that you can dispel glyphs of warding. And the erase spell lets you attempt to dispel glyphs of warding for a much cheaper cost. The erase spell is only a first level spell, which really opens up the possibility or it allows you to make uh, heists of wizard towers far more interesting. So if you're if you're bringing if if your seventh level characters are trying to heist a wizard tower, that's a that's a high level seventh level. A lot of people don't even make it to seventh level. You only have three or four dispel magics at your disposal, and those are your highest spell slots. So not only do you not get to cast your other really powerful magic, but you can't even put that many magical traps in front of your players because they don't have the tools to deal with it. If they have the erase spell, that gives you as a DM license to like put tons and tons of traps in front of your players because they have the tools to deal with it. That's actually that's a really smart way to think about it. No, I, I think it is funny how we both like came at it from different perspectives, but that's a great idea. Like I love that idea. And then the glitter dust spell is just awesome. So from a mechanics perspective, fairy fire is typically the spell, the AOE spell that you would use to deal with invisible creatures. This spell targets constitution instead of dexterity. And it's basically the equivalent of like the pocket sand spell, which I think is awesome, (laughs) except it's like pocket glitter. And you can even like blind your targets if you hit them with glitter dust, which I think is is just a great, it's like, ha pocket sand (laughs) then all of a sudden you had this like invisible assassin who had a very high dex score but a very low constitution score and not only are they visible but now they're blinded (laughs) it's awesome no that's a good point about fairy fire i didn't think of that maybe i should just use fairy fire for uh like as the way that my characters can deal with lots of different invisible creatures and, and put that straight into campaigns even without glitter dust Definitely. I would give them both. Uh, it's it's kind of unfortunate that most creatures that are invisible 
have very high dexterity scores because that's a part of like the invisibility fantasy is that you're a very dexterous and lithe and quick moving thing and you're sneaky very rarely do you see invisible creatures that have bad dexterity saves so it's actually kind of like poor design of fifth edition that the tool that they would give you to explicitly deal with invisible creatures they're like heavily resistant to that tool Right, that makes sense. Yeah, I, I, so I, having both, I think, could be a lot of fun. Um, what What were the two spells you wanted to choose? So I wanted to talk about Stoneheart. It's be, it's a seventh level necromancy spell for only wizards. So very strangely, warlocks and sorcerers do not get access to the spell. I think it makes sense and is appropriate, but I don't think there are many spells at all in the player handbook that are exclusive to only wizards. But um, the Stoneheart spell is you exchange your own living heart for a finely crafted heart of stone that you use for the spell's uh, material components. So this is, this is kind of like a pseudo-lich spell. Yeah. So you kind of like have created your own phylactery. The, you, so the thing is, you need to keep the stone heart within a mile of you, which I think totally makes sense. They basically take the concept of lichdom and basically like balance it for a player character, which if you're a wizard, you have access to spells like contingency and clone. So there's already a lot of precedence for being able to give yourself like extra lives as a wizard. And this one is heavily thematic in the direction of uh becoming a lich yeah i agree the power level of this i think makes perfect sense it's like wildly cool there are kinds of things that already give you resistance to death and there are also like super high power like kind of body shaping abilities at seventh level i'm thinking where you make a copy of yourself like a simulacrum i think that this idea of you know recreating a, a piece of your body your heart is like extremely cool makes sense at that level of power and also is reminds me a little bit of lich seeking mages that are like looking to make themselves more powerful and playing a character like that that fits in with an adventuring party i actually think is not so hard uh, to be a little bit selfish and wanting more power I think it's pretty easy in an adventuring party because you're naturally going to become more powerful by adventuring. It's like maybe the only way to become extremely powerful is to go out into the world and seek out monsters. So I think it works well. It creates a, a very interesting, like kind of selfish, maybe evil character in your adventuring group. I'm picturing like Raistlin from the Dragonlance uh, books. I don't know if you're familiar with mm -hmm. um, that type of uh, old school D&D, or maybe if you're listening, you haven't heard that name before, but... It's really a, this like canonical mage who sacrifices his own body for power. And it's a very cool idea and I think works great with the spell. I think that that's a great trope. If you're, if you're a player who is used to mostly only playing the style of D&D &D where everyone's on the same team and they want to save each other, which is, is fun. But like everyone's on the same team, they, they're, all of their primary goal is to finish the adventure and to save the world. If you're tr trying to experiment with branching out and having a more personal character with a more personal motivation, seeking power at any cost is a really good kind of like intro motivation, mostly because it's predictable. It's unlikely that you'll upset someone else in the party for acting against the party's best interest if your character all along has been broadcasting that they will sacrifice almost anything for more power, which is really nice for parties to kind of like ease their way into that different style of party cohesion. I think that this Stoneheart ability could act in a little bit of a similar way to introducing a story arc that you have control over that the Somnian has. So uh, if you die and you can really give up your life in a lot of these super high level combats, you can sacrifice yourself in an exciting way. Maybe your other players don't know about the stone art, or maybe they do and are expecting you to come back. But you come back not as a hero, but as an NPC, and you start a new character, and now there is a character out in the world that has some other motivations that needed to leave your party for some reason, go out and explore their own journey and finish their journey on their own, 
and you now play a new player character. And I think that could be really, really fun. It's something that MCDM talks about a lot is when player's character dies, now Matt has control and Matt gets to bring that character back because death is, you know, just a a small bump in the road in D&D. So he can bring back these dead characters as NPCs. So I think this could be one way to do that in a very player-focused way. I think the one thing that I would change about the spell, and then we will move on to the next one, is when the spell ends, your own living heart instantly returns to its proper place and the stone heart is destroyed. I think that I would change this uh, such that the other heart could be used, uh, like someone could hold your heart uh, at ransom against you. And kind of like coerce you into doing things on pain of like death. Yeah, that, I mean, that would be really cool. <laughs> That's like a, a really great character idea and could be used for a villain. You know, a villain is only doing it because their heart was captured. Right, exactly. And then the other spell that I wanted to talk about was Attract Metal. This is this is the Yeet spell, which I just love. So like if you have a if you if you're like fighting against like an armed knight on cavalry back, just the idea that if they're wearing metal, you can just use Attract Metal to basically like magneto them off of their mount is just so awesome. I love that so much. Yeah, that's a great way to use the spell. And it's a it's just a utility spell that if you imagine you know, the ability to like move things around magically. You know, if you've imagined that in your daily life, like you can make it real in D&D. So uh, I think it's a great fantasy fulfillment spell too, that like being able to control objects is just fun. Yeah, it's like an intro to telekinesis spell. Exactly, exactly. Cool. And then the next article is called Aces High, New Rules for Aerial Combat by Sam Mannell. This is really cool. This is an abstraction over aerial combat in D&D that makes aerial combat more exciting, more like kind of like the aerial combats that we see in movies. It makes aerial combat less about like trying to calculate like the diagonals of movement and keeping track of like how many feet someone is away from someone else and makes it more abstract and more about kind of like aerial tactics and kind of like dog fighting almost it kind of almost turns this into like an old style world war ii um or like star wars uh aerial dog fight with ships so instead of tracking position what they do is they track altitude and you just track your altitude with a d6 you just put it next to your character and that's your altitude <laughs> and what you do is instead of like moving or having traditional movement speed, your flying speed makes you better at aerial combat. So if you have a, a higher flying speed than someone else's flying speed, that's how that your bonus is better. Your flight bonus is better. So that's how that factors in. So it's still good to have a bigger flying speed, but you're not tracking distance and feet anymore. It's just who has the high ground in the air against their opponents and how much higher are they than you yeah i think this is a really really smart way to do it so i i think of the aces high um addition here as kind of creating a little bit of a non-dnd uh, implementation of aerial combat it's it's like very similar to DD. it uses a lot of the same principles but it's like well the DD rules don't fit that well for aerial combat so let's make our own rules. And, and I think what you're saying is exactly speaks to that. It's like distance and calculating distance is, is tough and movement, uh, like making sure everybody like moves, you know, in a certain place is a little bit tough, like three dimensionally and, and showing that on, you know, at your table three dimensionally is hard. Now we just have these other rules and these other rules make it way more understandable. Your flying speed matters, but you don't have to, you know, represent a bunch of characters three-dimensionally. So now we just have altitude. Uh, and I think it's super useful, but I do think it is like a mini-game, and I think you will have to learn the rules of this mini-game uh, separate from the rules of D&D to play. So I think for many tables, that's going to be a lot of fun, and learning new rules uh, isn't so hard for D&D because we've been playing 5th edition for like, you know, 10 years now, and we know them like front, back, and center. So like picking up a few new rules for a mini game, I think is something that everybody would be willing to do at a lot of these like experienced tables. So I, I think it, it works out really well for 
because I think that the audience for a lot of this Arcadia is, you know, more experienced players who want to get something new and exciting out of 5th edition. I think that's exactly correct. And we've seen NCDM do this for other things like Warfare as well. So D&D is very much about like it's me versus you on the ground. We each have a sword and a shield and maybe some magic. And it, it doesn't scale well if you try to like use those rules for warfare, for flight combat, even mounted combat starts to get a little weird. That's why they needed to add some extra rules. They're really good at saying like, hey, this can still be a part of your fantasy. Here is the toolkit that you need to build it in. And I think to your point, Ariel, because the, the, I mean, this is a fairly complex minigame. This isn't a rule set that you break out when your players accidentally start flight combat. Right, right, right. It's like, oh, okay, like, let's just bring this out and like start using this. You really do need to kind of prepare your players with the rules ahead of time saying, okay, next session, we are doing a flight combat and we're going to use these rules. Make sure you're familiar with them. Yeah, this is uh, actually brings up a point that I, I haven't made, I think, on this podcast before, but I kind of like as a DM the ability to feel comfortable saying, hey, let's stop here and next session we'll do this. Uh, I say it if I'm not prepared or if I want to be better prepared. Say like, hey guys, I really want to prepare this thing. Like, let's stop here and next session we'll pick back up at this spot. And so for aerial combat, if your players surprise you with like this really exciting aerial combat moment, maybe say like, hey guys, let's pause here. This is going to be so cool. Let's do it next week with these rules. Let's uh, And we'll figure it out in between sessions how everybody can use these rules, make a seamless, fun encounter rather than an encounter where everybody's looking down at the handout and trying to figure out what they can do and what they can't do. I think pausing in the middle of a session is okay, especially if you're with your friends and you don't mind just like hanging out, you know, talking about how your week was or talking about something funny that happened with, you know, the extra time you have left over. I think that's a great point. I think there's nothing wrong with uh, so like if you're if you introduce a dragon and the, it, there's a dragon fight and now all of a sudden your warlock casts fly on everybody in the party and now it's an aerial combat. You could say like this is sick. You can give a quick DM vignette talking about how all of you are sixty feet up in the air and and your the dragon is flapping its wings and fire is shooting out of its nostrils and it's looking at you. Yeah. Really set it up, set the stage. Yeah, we'll pick up here next time. And uh, the system is very exciting. It seems like it makes sense to me. Uh, there's like some really cool like moves and tactics that you can use. Uh, very similar to like kind of like Star Wars Battlefront 2 or any dog fighting game that you've ever played. Yeah, and, and it's interesting that right before they have a, a whole adventure that is really you know built on the idea of like, what can we do to play a session of D&D with like almost no combat and is really, you know, investigation and, and player driven and, and focused on exploration? Right before that, they give you a, a whole section that is just focused on combat. So I think this um, edition of Arcadia does a great job of giving you everything. It gives you character options. It gives you combat options. It gives you non-combat options. I think that's one of the reasons, like you were saying earlier, Ray, that, that this is a really exceptional edition of Arcadia. Yeah, it's wild. It's so inspiring. It makes me want to take things that I also don't think work really well in Dungeons and Dragons and create my own playable systems for those things too. The idea that it's like, I don't need to extend the pre-existing rules for Dungeons and Dragons onto this higher concept. I can create like a brand new minigame for, for that. Yeah, totally. Especially when you have a group of people that are really fluent with their game uh, and their characters uh, and the rules of traditional, you know, fifth edition. They can take on a little bit more learning, you know, in between sessions to have like a really fun aerial combat, which they probably have never done before. You want to move on to the uh, the last article here? Yeah. So the last article we have is an adventure. It's called A Diamond in the Rough, a role play and intrigue adventure for third level characters written by Allison Wong. This starts off from a jumping off point where your players are looking to get some money and some jewelry has been stolen from a, you know, noble family. And there's a big reward for it, 200 gold pieces per character, which is, a, I think, a very good size reward for a third level party. Uh, you know, if your 
players happen to have a lot of gold you can obviously scale and up and down these things based on you know your setting and what gold means in your setting um but that's kind of the hook and then the story itself uh ends up having you know a lot more to do with the characters involved than the actual thieves uh or than the actual stolen goods the stolen goods don't matter really so much at all you just have a wide cast of like weird and maybe not so nice uh npcs to interact with that are really the crux of this adventure so i think that's that's pretty cool you meet the butler first so um just to just to jump back real quick i think it's really ironic that the issue that released the week after we talked about ryutama and running combatless adventures is an entire rich and well-designed adventure that does not spotlight combat uh, really at all. There's a possibility that the conflict at the very end of the adventure might be resolved with combat, but I wouldn't even say that that is really the, the major option. The adventure really gives players every opportunity to set themselves up to be able to succeed on their persuasion, deception, and insight checks if they are interacting with kind of like the mystery and intrigue that these characters are putting forward. Yeah, and and you can see it in the writing too. So like the writing of this adventure, what it focuses on is here's a character that I am introducing you. Here is their room in the mansion and what are the clues in the mansion? I think that's really nice that it's it's actually specifically pointing out to you what the clues are very clearly front and center. So that when you're reading this as a DM, you're thinking about how I can introduce those clues to the players. It's, it's very natural, I think, to read this and then run it. So you get these clues. Uh, and the other thing I really like about this adventure from a more abstract perspective is that they, they tell you how you can change things a little bit to make your players believe one thing more than another. So one of the sections specifically is about the butler. And there's this trope that the butler did it. And if you really want to play up that trope, it gives you specific options for things you can tell the players. Like, oh, the butler hastily puts something in their pocket. And then uh, if the players are really investigate that further, they realize it's just their pocket watch. But it's these red herrings. And I think that this investigative mystery style adventure having done that work as a writer makes me as the dm have to do less work and i can just pick this up and play it immediately and i think that's really really smart i can add red herrings i can deceive the players i can spice things up as much as i want based on how the players are doing in the moment and i don't have to come up with that work in the moment as a dm it was already written for me so i think it's just really sharp writing from an adventure standpoint i think that's very insightful this adventure takes the the instincts that we develop as DMs and challenges those instincts. So just back going back to what you said, like I find myself as a DM often only presenting information to the players that is relevant and gets them closer to the next combat, getting through the story such that they can get to the end of the story for pacing purposes. And this adventure says, no, no, no. The fun of this adventure is the intrigue and the players going on these like these wrong hunches and like finding out that they're wrong and being wrong and being surprised by like, what the actual thing is at the end of the story and i think that if you are trying to put too many balls in the air or spin too many plates that's a really negative experience for players they feel like you purposely tricked them but this adventure is its own kind of contained bubble where that type of storytelling is safe in this space which i i, I love that the writer did that yeah exactly you're being put in a mansion with wonky characters trying to solve a wonky mystery the bait and switch here is going to be a tool that players are expecting or won't be surprised by or angry at, I think, if you introduce them. If you introduce some red herring, some bait and switch, I think it will increase the immersion. It will make your players feel, oh, I'm really in one of these wonky adventures where we're trying to find out the whodunit. I don't think it will take away from the experience. I think it will add to it. And that's why it's this contained little bubble where you are going against some natural instincts as a DM where 
in bigger, more mainstream parts of the story, I wouldn't want to have little bait and switches about a pocket watch. When it comes to the tone that this adventure is setting, it actually is going to really make your players feel immersed and having a lot of fun in a murder mystery, but it's not a murder mystery necessarily. Yeah, it's got that really nice quaint and like localized tone of storytelling that I feel like is too often overlooked in Dungeons and Dragons. I could see you really dropping this mystery in if one of your players is a noble and they visit maybe their like aunt's estate or something like that and you you need to introduce their family members but you don't want to just clobber your players over the head with all of their family members all at once you could drip feed them the members of that family with this adventure yeah it actually would be freaking hilarious if you made this a uh, family adventure where it's their aunt or cousin or distant uh, family member because they're the twist that the hidden ending would be really really fun in that scenario so maybe try that out i think there's so many things in uh, edition three of arcadia that you can just pick up put down in front of your players quickly and easily it's very easy to take what's written here and just put it in a game uh, except for maybe the uh, the Aces High section. But give it a try. Maybe make it a family member. I think that would be super fun. Edition 3 of Arcadia, big success, I think. Yeah, I'm really impressed with issue 3. I think they, they really kind of like dialed in on what makes Arcadia so special. And I'm really excited that they've decided to continue making more and more Arcadia issues. Though I do believe that we are not getting an Arcadia issue next month. I think MCDM will be releasing something else instead. So perhaps we will review that instead next month. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. And, and I can wait a month uh, if I need to for more Arcadia. It's you know almost too much to, to use at once. So I'm okay with that. All right, well, my name is Raymond O'Connor. And I'm Ariel Rasco. And thanks for listening to Running Off the Rails. If you enjoyed Running Off the Rails, please like, follow, and review our show on your platform of choice. Please follow our Instagram, Running Off the Rails, for notifications whenever we release a blog post, a new episode, or new content on the DMs Guild. If you prefer a specific type of content, please send us a message on Instagram. The jam you are listening to is Hoist by Andy G. Cohen, and you can find Hoist and more of Cohen's music on the Free Music Archive. You can find links to all of our content at runningofftherails.com or on our Facebook page, Running Off the Rails. 